You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Tuesday, the 26th of July, 2022. Thank you all for tuning in on today's program. We're going to be dealing with topic, uh, study. Basically, it's going to be a number of Bible studies that I did for a church a couple weeks ago, and I really enjoyed giving them, and I said, well, I will take these studies and probably just put them into one podcast program talking about knowing and loving Jesus the Messiah. That's going to really going to be the title of it, and just kind of compressing down into it. Now, I also found it interesting that a lot of the things I've been studying recently just seem to be, oddly enough, areas of controversy. Um, I haven't been on Twitter much over the last, I don't know how long since I deleted my previous one. I have one, but it's, I more use it, not more so to tweet too much, just purely maybe to keep up with a few things. And um, I may... I might even re get rid of that because I just Twitter doesn't bring out the best in people. But I I noticed a lot of discussion around the area of um the topics of divine impassibility and divine simplicity. And for those of you not aware of those terms Divine impassibility was another way of saying it is God doesn't change. He is who he is. Um, to quote from Exodus chapter 3, I am that I am. He's all, the all-sufficient one. And Jesus is God, so he never changes in his divinity yesterday, today, and forever. Um, divine simplicity then would be, you know, that um, he is not in various different parts. Um, God is the source of all goodness. He is um, all that is, God is love. He's without parts, as uh, the, the confessions would say. So there's, you know, there's topics or there's talks around those things. And um, it's funny how you, you, you tune out of people for a while. And I think with all the things that are going on in the world, and somebody emailed me the other day about possibly doing a critique of a certain channel, and I'm pretty picky sometimes with what I do anymore because sometimes the the channels are openly heretical and they don't really hide it, and I'm kind of, I don't really tend to do those things um, much. It depends. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I just try to think, is there any educational value in critiquing that? And it's it's hard to know sometimes. Sometimes I try not to give extra views towards, you know, channels that are controversial for controversial sake. But sometimes it is beneficial to critique. It is beneficial to refute and show where the falsehood is and then show where the truth is. But largely what we need in the church is not just going around being reactionary. And the church has been reactionary for quite some time. And largely because 
largely the church has been reactionary for quite some time is because we've neglected various areas of study within the church, such as um, divine impassibility and divine simplicity, things that are being discussed now. You know, there's a number of Reformed Baptists. I'm not a Reformed Baptist. I used to be years ago, but I'm not now. But, you know, are, I'm, I'm thankful for those men, frankly. Um, I haven't read all their stuff. I don't know if I agree with them on everything or whatever the case may be. But I'm glad that they are discussing these things. Um, recently picked up a copy of um, All That Is In God and people rave about it. Uh, it's a book by Delitzel. That's his um, last name. And I, I've heard great things about it. I remember R.C. Sproul raving about it, just saying it was one of the best books he'd read in a long time. So um, I think what we have in the church today is uh, the church has become very reactionary because we've abandoned old classical formulations of explaining things. And we've been very critical of the past. I'm not saying we should wholeheartedly embrace everything from the past uncritically, but there are many things from the past and how we defined things with regard to the Trinity, things with regard to all sorts of things in systematic theology that we've set aside. We have neglected a lot of positive truth, and in, in its vacuum, it's left in a lot of poor teaching which has impacted how we look at Christ, which has impacted how we look at both, either it can be impacting how we look at Jesus as God, how he ever, for every single moment that he was upon the earth as true man, and he still is true man today, that he is at every moment in control in his divine nature of every blade of grass, of every atom, of every hair that falls from our heads. He is in control of everything. I don't think we really think of Jesus, the Messiah, that way. He is true God and he is true man. But in usually with, with controversies, we either go to one or the other, but we have to maintain both. Uh, two natures, one person. It's not like part of him is God and part of him is you know, like we can break him up into different, like he's two different people or anything like that. No, that's heretical. But it is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is true God in every sense of the word. But he is also true man. And so what we've got to do, there, there's a value to to polemics, and polemics will largely deal with the falsehoods and refute it, and then present should present the truth in a positive way. Um, there's a way polemics should be done right. It's not always easy because of, you know, falsehoods will obviously annoy us, and that's going to happen if we if we love the truth. But sometimes it can drive us too far. We have got to in the church today really gravitate towards more looking toward positive truth. And I think we have largely not done that in certain circles, in certain circles. I think it's great to come out, you know, I know people, you know, I'm talking about 
both podcasts and not talking about personally and stuff that I do know some people personally as well. But see, you can come out of the charismatic movement or you can come out of um, fundamentalism or whatever. And for the rest of your Christian life, your whole thing, the shtick is how your previous movement you were in were wrong in this area, they were wrong in this area, they were wrong in this area. And now you want to go as far to, to and correct all that stuff and make sure you're not bringing along that with you. The problem with that is you'll probably get into new errors. And you'll probably, in reacting to anything, we could end up in our own errors. For example, a person may be, I've actually, I've seen examples, I've actually seen examples of this personally, and so, sadly, unfortunately, that, okay, you see the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, Rome is this and that, which is true, you know, this is the, the teach a false gospel. And then you kind of go, oh, look, Rome teaches the, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, we can't be teaching that either. And um, you can, that's an example. By the way, I have seen that play out, unfortunately. So we've got to make sure that we're not just kind of, our, our, it's positive truth from the scriptures. And here's why, why we believe what we believe. And then we're unified with other believers in Christ because we believe the same truth. We believe in the same Messiah. We believe in the same King. We believe in the same Lord. That brings us together. In our very, very polarized and divisive culture which we live in today, we can often be united around what we don't like. And that's not a good thing. That is not a good thing. So today, Lord willing, I want us to look at Christ the Messiah, and talk about knowing him and loving him. And the first thing we're going to be looking at is how he is true man. Or not true, true man, we're going to look at true God first. And we're just going to look at a few things here because um, there's other points I'm going to look at beyond this. Usually it's not what people struggle with, but if you look at um, what, what Jesus said in John 8 58 he said most assuredly I say unto you before Abraham was I am before Abraham was and did Abraham live close in time to him no Jesus the Christ the Christ the second person of the trinity he is eternal. Before Abraham was, I am. He is the self-existent one. He is the I am that I am of Exodus chapter 3, appearing in the burning bush. And that's why they took up stones to throw at him. Because they knew what he was claiming. That he was the son of God. He was true God. Verse 59, then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out into the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, whatever way we interpret various things, we've got to remember that in his divine mind, as true God, he cannot change. He, he developed as man. He grew, he learned as man. But in his divine mind, he didn't learn anything because he is true God. We may struggle to wrap our minds around these things. And of course we will. 
the infinite God, the creator of heaven and earth, entered into this world and took upon himself human flesh. The word became flesh. The eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're always going to struggle with that. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And literally in the Greek, it's like, there's not a thing, single thing that was made that was made without him. Everything that was made. Every single thing. And you can see the word in Genesis 1. Let there be light. And there was light. God the Father created. God the Son created. God the Holy, Spo God the Holy Spirit created. Moved upon the face of the earth. So, true God in every single sense of the word. And we've got to think about what does it mean to be God? He is one that cannot change. He is one that loves righteousness, cannot look upon iniquity, but de delights in righteousness, but hates sin. He hates falsehood. He is merciful. But he's perfectly just. And he can only show mercy to those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So if you're listening to this and you don't know Jesus at all, you must come forsaking your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ and in him alone for salvation, that he, that he would wash you clean of your sin and that you would be clothed in his perfect righteousness. One other passage I was just looking at here, and I'm just picking a few passages here. I'm going to really look, focus more on the other points, which is true man. There's... I suppose as people who struggle with either, and I'm not saying that these are, there are, all of us need to study these things. All of us need to study these things. We're all going to struggle with them unless we really, really uh, spend serious time meditating upon them. In Proverbs 8, talks about the, the personification of wisdom. And then from verse 22 of Proverbs chapter 8, it says this, the Lord possessed me in at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was ever an earth. Where there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no fountain, fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust 
of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the the fountains of the deep. And this one who is wisdom, verse 12, I wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. This wisdom was there before the foundation of the world. And this wisdom was the one in whom the Father delighted in. He is the one who came into this world, took upon himself the form of a man. And I think it bring, bring us on then to Philippians chapter 2, a wonderful section of Scripture that really needs to be handled with care. So it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, equal with God, now, he made himself, literally people will translate it sometimes, nothing or made himself no reputation. That is, his glory is veiled, but he in no way changes. His deity in no way changes. And deity in every single point. He's all-knowing, omnipresent. When Jesus was asleep in, in the boat, in the storm, in the Sea of Galilee, he was in control of that storm while he was asleep. Just as much as he was in control when he told the sea, when, when he calmed the storm afterwards. Every single thing. And we are just like the apostles, we ourselves are amazement to think of that. We don't really think of him like that. And we often have the same struggles, diminishing either the power of him as true God, but we should not also diminish that he is true man. We can be maybe tempted to overcorrect and downplay Christ's humanity and make it almost less in humanity than you or I. Now, the difference between him and I, Jesus the Christ and us is he is sinless in thought and word and deed. And every single moment of his life, he loved the Father as he ought to be loved. We've never done that for one single second. Jesus, for every moment of his life, before he was incarnate, while he was upon the earth, and now today, at every moment, always true God. But he became true man. He wasn't always man. He became, the word became flesh, John 1.14. 
So the, the Christ, the Son of God, never changes in terms of his divine nature. But he took on human flesh. And that nature does change. He grew. Now, before we look at different things of thinking about him as true man, let us think about how he's miraculously conceived in the womb of Mary. If we look at Luke 1, Luke chapter 1, verses 31. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He will he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said unto the, how can I, how can this be, since I do not know a man? Verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So, there's a miraculous conception. Miraculous in terms of what, what, what happens always when conception, there's a man and a woman. There's a father, there's a, there's a human father, there's a human mother. But this doesn't happen here, does it? There's a human mother, but there's no human father. It's a miracle. And the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary before she knew in an intimate sexual way with her husband, before she knew a husband, she was with child. That's a miracle. That's, you know, we, we talk about the, the virgin birth. There's a sense in which the birth of Jesus is, I'll be careful with my words here, kind of just like any other birth. It's the conception that is different. The, as a as true man, he de- developed in the womb. A baby, growing and developing. And then born into this world. It's the conception, from the point of conception, that, that point of conception, which is the, the real miracle. And then he grew and developed as a man, obviously without sin, in a quote-unquote normal way, as man would develop. If we think of just two passages in Luke chapter 2, verse 42, which says this, I'm sorry, verse 40, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. The grace of God was upon him. And when it's a bit clearer in his, in his, his increase in wisdom, verse 52 of Luke chapter 2, and Jesus increased in wisdom and, and stature and in favor with God and man. Increased in wisdom and stature. How can 
Jesus increase in wisdom in his human nature, not his divine nature, because his divine nature, well, what can he can what can he learn in his divine nature? Nothing, because he knows everything. His foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. But in his human nature, in his human mind, he learned. He grew in wisdom. And in favor with God and men. That's what there's two distinct natures here. Two distinct natures, but one single person. You might say, I don't understand this. Well, the, it should leave us in awe. We can't, can we? We're just like, whoa. Seriously? There, when we learn of divine truths, when we learn of what God did for us sinners... It should leave us in awe. It should leave us in a sense of how is this possible? Now, so we learned in his human mind, but, but again to remind ourselves, in his divine mind as God, he could not learn anything. We think of that passage in Mark 13.32, don't we? That, that difficult passage. So Mark 13.32, to really emphasize this point a little bit more. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed and watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Now, there seems to be a time you know, of the return when the Son does not know. Well, that can't be in his divine mind. His divine mind cannot change. His divine mind foreordained whatsoever came to pass. He can't limit his power. He can veil his glory. But he can't stop being the one who sustains life. That is who he is. I am that I am. And Jesus said it, you know, there at the end of John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't cease at any single point to be the I am. In his human mind, he didn't know. In his human mind. But in his divine mind, he knew everything. So, you have to be careful with our formulations. We have to be careful that we do not either diminish either his divinity, his deity, that fact that he is the Jehovah spoken about in the Old Testament, the word Jehovah in Greek is kurios, kurios translated Lord in our, in our Bibles, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is... In his divine, in his divinity, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing.
for example, in his divine nature, he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. In his human nature, he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's in one place in his human nature. Two distinct natures, one not corrupting the other. True God, true man. So he became true man. He he dwelt among his people. He tabernacled. That word dwelt among his people could also be rendered to tabernacle among his people. Kind of a word that has that sense of to tabernacle among. And then he suffered among his people. He suffered among his people. When we see who it is and how important he is and how powerful he is and how freely, how freely of his own will, he surrendered and freely gave up his life for our sins, for the sins of people like you and I, to not turn to him is the great, you know, if somebody gives you a great gift, a lovely gift, and you, you refuse it, somebody who's kind and caring and cares for you, well, it would be seen as disrespectful. This is far greater than that. It would be the, the highest to the infinite degree of ingratitude that could ever be imagined. He came into this world, a world he created, and his subjects rebelled against him. And he came in and died for those people. A man thinks that God owes him. The first Adam, for an Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15.22, he failed. For all in Adam failed. His sin became our sin. But the righteousness of Christ, the second Adam, his righteousness became our righteousness by faith in him and in him alone. He came to pay the sin that he died. He died as a man. In other ways as well, he, in his divine nature, he, he continued to exist. He can't die in his divine nature. His body as true man, he died as a man. He shed his blood as true man. And that sacrifice as a true man was so valuable because he was also true God. And he could represent all the sins of all the people who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. His body was perfectly sinless. It went into the ground. And it did not see corruption. When our bodies go into the ground, they will see corruption because we're sinners. We're sinners. But because he never sinned, he was sinless humanity. He was that second Adam. For where Adam failed, Christ Succeeded. 
and true man. He rose from the dead for his people. Jesus the Christ rose from the dead, showing that he was truly all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, he would not have been seen as sinless because he was vindicated and shown that everything he said was true and that this is the one who would come to fulfill all righteousness. His body without corruption. References there, Psalm 16, verse 10, and that part of Psalm 16 is quoted then by Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 27. He is the spotless, sinless Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And he, he, was, he was received up into heaven where he is today. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. If we think of Mark chapter 16, verse 19. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The next one we're going to look at as well. So we've looked at Jesus' true God. Now we looked at that briefly, how he, was tr- how he is true man. Tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Now, he was tempted not with things that were inherently sinful, like he was tempted with. He got hungry. He was tired, he he was tempted with things that really were not inherently sinful of themselves. Like when the devil offered him bread, bread is not, it's not wrong to be hungry. But we should not, that should not lead us into sin and various things can Natural desires can draw us into sin if we go if we take them too far. He was tempted. So we've got to make sure we don't that thing of him being tempted in all points as we are. We've got to be careful about that in the categories and stuff like that. He, you know, you know, you see some strange applications of that verse in, in modern day as if you know that the the struggles you could say the young people have on the internet with lusting after various people or no not in all points in that sense but in his human weakness not sinful weakness but is creaturely weakness as true men he needed to take a nap That is the sense I'm talking about. So, not only, so he is true God, he's true man, Jesus is also the very definition of what it is to be loving. Now, we think today of various different movements. And you could probably think of Various different movements which try to define love. Amnesty International, anything around LGBT-related issues, and 
they'll make, you know, like, love is a human right, I think is one banner that you see somewhere. But the real definition of love is God. He is what love is. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, and you might even see slogans such as, I think I saw slogans such as God is love used by some of the liberal side, but used in the wrong way and distorted. What they mean is licentiousness, turning the grace of God into licentiousness and using it as a cloak for sin. But is, is there still not truth in the saying, Jesus is love or God is love? Yes, he is. Jesus is love because he is God. Regardless of how it may be distorted in modern day culture or any other time in history. To follow God is what it means to be loving. From, to follow God from the heart. That's how you do follow God. And that's to be loving toward God and man because that character is revealed in the law, in the first and second table of the law, the first table of the law towards God, the second table of the law toward man. First table of the law, commandments 1 to 4, beginning with, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no gods before me, all the way down to the fourth commandment, which is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The second table of the law, beginning with the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother, which is really command about honoring and obeying those in authority. It's not just biological parents. Also, anybody in authority could be that could relate to your job. It could relate to also those relationships to superiors and inferiors. These are summaries of the law. And then if we think about going all the way down then to thou shalt not covet, the 10th commandment, that is... The, the second table of the law, which is also summarized in the New Testament in Matthew 22, I think it's verse 40, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And all, on these two, the two great commandments, to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor, those two great commandments, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets, another way of saying that is, on these two hang all the Old Testament. Law and the prophets is a phrase in the New Testament pretty much to refer to the Old Testament. What we would call the Old Testament today. The, the Hebrew and Aramaic texts, starting with Genesis, and going all the way to well, Second Chronicles, if you've got a Hebrew Bible, or all the way to as a Malachi in the English Bible. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Actually, if you pick up a copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew, it won't say the Old Testament. It will say, what is it? Uh, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, I think it is. That's what it says. There's three Hebrew words there. But you don't have one in front of me here. So you'll see three. Yeah, Law, Prophet, and Writings. So, and the Law is talking about the first five books of Moses. 
go throughout the Bible, stop at the, the law, the law of Moses. If, if you go to the book of Nehemiah and he's talking about the law of Moses, he's talking about Genesis to Deuteronomy. They'd forgotten about that. And often the message of the prophets then, so you've got the law, the first five books of the Bible, and then the, first, the prophets then, and I'm being general here, I'm being very general, is largely calling them back to that law that they had abandoned. And then the writings, which are generally wisdom, how to use that law, that standard, and how it's lived out in everyday life, whether that be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or whatever else. Now, Jesus is love. So, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to... I'm just going to read a few verses from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 following. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is of love. Sorry, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, the example here by John, in, in, in 1 John, is... God is love, so look at the example of love. We should live like that. That is how we are. To, he is the perfect example of love. And another text you could look at there is uh, 1 John chapter 2. Again, there's a lot of these in 1 John. 1 John is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. Uh, it talks about, you know, there's two things here. There's... There's a new commandment and there's no new commandment. Uh, the, the, it's a, not a new commandment because this is an old commandment from the beginning. God is love. A new commandment because Jesus came and showed what it is like to love and basically imitate him. He has shown everybody what it looks like to live a perfectly loving life. Here's what it looks like. It is how Jesus lived. So, First uh, John chapter two, verses three to eight. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. For who, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments, is, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Verse seven, brethren. I write no new commandments to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So, it might sound confusing when you read that, verses 7 and 8 of that chapter, but in one sense, it's like no new commandment. The next verse, it says, again, a new commandment I write unto you. The, it's, it's not new in terms of, it's an eternal standard, it never changes, it's from the very beginning. 
in another sense, it is a new commandment in how it's been modeled and shown because Jesus came and says, follow me. That is the new commandment. But he embodied that old commandment. And in some way, it is not. In one aspect, it is not a new commandment. Verses, uh, John 15, verse 12. This is the gospel of John now. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. That's the commandment. It's really summarizing the law of God in another way. Love one another as I have shown you as I have demonstrated, as I have done, because he's the perfect example, the perfect embodiment of what love is. If Christ has done it, it is loving. Every single thing he did was loving, at every single point, at every single second, loving everything toward God and toward man, because he is love. He is love. And he did all things for, his, for God's glory. For his glory. That is loving. If we want to think of what does it mean to be loving in this world toward God and toward man, we should do all things for the glory of God. Because that's what Jesus did when he was upon the earth. He did all things for the glory of God. Are we living for the glory of God? Or are we living for our own pleasures or our own things? If we love this fallen world, this present evil age, they were not following this perfect example of love. If we, there's, you know, we we can't have two masters. Either we love one or the, we hate the other. That's Matthew 6, 24. Either we love Jesus, he is our master, he is our definition of what it is to be loved, or we love the world's definition of love. And we can't love both. We will either love one or hate the other. And that's why when the world sees our definition of love, it sees us as, as hatred. Because it loves a different definition, a distortion, a redefining of what it means to be loving. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Returning once again to 1 John. Two verse 15 says this, Do not love the world. Or the things in the world, if anyone does not, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this is talking not about the people. You know, we're told to love our enemies. We're told to, to love our neighbor. We're told in the law to love our neighbor as ourselves. So this is not talking about hating people and not showing love in that sense. Of course not. There's no contradiction with the word of God. This is talking about this present fallen evil age, this fallen evil ethical system that is at war with God. It's talking about the, the way of the seed of the serpent at war with the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. That's what the world is referring to here, this fallen present evil age. And if we love the ethical system of this fallen evil age, we don't love God, the love of the Father is not in us at all. So when we're around and surrounded by this, the evil of this present evil age, it will grieve us. It will make us sad. Or we will enjoy it and love it, in which case the love of the Father is not in us at all.
I can't remember when was was it like the end of last month? The Pride stuff ended. I'm not even sure anymore. I, oh, something I should have mentioned at the beginning of the program. Next Saturday, there, dig it up there. There is a if anybody lives in Northern Ireland, there is a United Christian Witness. I have it on my Facebook. If anybody follows me on Facebook, um, it's kind of an opposition against the Pride Parade. It's taking place next Saturday, the 30th of July, 2022. There's about, I think there's about 10 people preaching or something like that from the front of Belfast City Hall. If you're in Belfast or in Northern Ireland or close to Northern Ireland or whatever, you would be more than welcome to join us and to stand against um, crimes against nature. And that will be starting at 11 a.m., and go on to about 3 p.m. The the open air itself, the, the preaching and things like that starts at 11.45 a.m. I am, I'm not organizing it, but but you'd be more than welcome to join. I'm not the the main person to ask about the different details, and but you would be more than welcome to stand, hold up a sign or something like that with a, with a Bible text. Um, don't worry, there's there, a good friend of mine, Raymond Stewart, has a number of... Uh, kind of signs with Bible text. So if you've got, if you've got hands that can hold them up for a while, and you don't even have to hold them up, just have to hold them up standing. Um, you would be more than welcome to join with us if you were. Um, so that's Belfast, in front of Belfast City Hall. You can come at 11.45 if 11 o'clock doesn't suit you, but th- that is next Saturday. If you've got any questions about that, please feel free to message me. Uh, one email you can reach me on, is radio at gmail.com. That's M-E-G-I-D-D-O radio at gmail.com. Sorry, that was an announcement I should have made at the beginning of the program. I'm not the greatest when it comes to announcements at the beginning of the program. So, now, we have a little bit more to get done. I'm going to stop at the hour mark. Um, I want to finish this... Um, so Jesus is love. Um, we've got to really know what love is so that we're not hoodwinked or fooled by the world what what love is. The world has redefined marriage. It's redefined. And we've got to make sure that our, our standard, what love is, is according to God's standard, not man's standard, not an unloving and an unjust standard. Uh, the law of God is love because it really shows the moral character of God. Our thoughts are important when it comes to love. Our words are important. And also our works are important when it comes to love. And we can have a very lawless view of love. But Christ did not. Again, John 14, 15 is one text. If you love me, keep my commandments. Um, but if you look at the, the example of the Pharisees, um, they were called the father the devil. John 8, 42. So there's basically two people in the world. No, none of us are perfect or anything like that, but there's a group of people who've been born again of the Spirit of God who follow after Christ. They are the seed of the woman. The Everybody else who has not had saving faith, they may go to church, they may do a lot of different things, they may feel themselves religious or whatever. They may think they're even genuinely saved, but at the end of the day, they're of the fall of the devil. Uh, in John 8, Verse 42, they thought they were the true believers. John 8, 42 
says this, Jesus said to them, if you are, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, not have, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. So if, if you, you know, if you love Jesus, keep his commandments. If you love Jesus and you follow him, then you're, you love the father. And if you do not love Jesus, you do not follow his commandments. You do not follow the law of God. You live a very lawless way. You're of your father, the devil, and there's no middle ground. There's the lukewarmness that everybody seems comfortable with today in modern-day Christianity. Um, you see the, the example of one of the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation, Laodicea. And what did Jesus say to the, the church in Laodicea, which was very lukewarm, wasn't hot, wasn't cold, Midland. And Jesus said, I will spew you out of my mouth. They were not born again. At least many of them were not. They may have been make, making an outward profession of faith, but they were not hot or cold. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you seek to follow his law? You Knowing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, knowing that none of us can boast in our obedience, knowing that uh, following God's law brings a humility, a gracious spirit towards others. It brings a meek not a, an aggressive, brash, ostentatious spirit that you sometimes see with some people, um, but a meek, submissive spirit to the service of God of Christ's kingdom, to suffer for the sake of others, because that's what Christ did. That's what he came to do. And think of it, the law of God in another way. The law of God is love summarized. It's what love looks like. To break the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, is not loving. To break the seventh commandment and to, to break the marriage covenant, that is not loving. Uh, to covet after your neighbor's goods, that is not loving. To break the second commandment and introduce false worship, that is not loving. So, Thinking of love, think of the love of God and command keeping, they're not at odds with each other. They go hand in hand, which is why in the middle of Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, it says this, showing mercy unto thousands of them that loved me and keep my commandments, that love me and keep my commandments, because that's what love looks like. There's an obedience to God. It's not based on that obedience, because if it did, none of us would have a hope. And also the inner heart of love matters as well. Love is action, but the heart does matter. What did Jesus ask of Peter? Lovest thou me? Do you love me? And then he said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. But do you love me? And it's a question for all of us. It's a question for ministers of the gospel. It's, it's, it's a question for each and every one of us who claim to, to be Christians. Do you love Jesus? Do you love his words? Do you love the voice of the great shepherd? And what do sheep do when they hear the voice of the great and good shepherd? Are they lukewarm about it? Or do they joyfully run toward his voice, eager to be fed by him? Well, Jesus is the good shepherd, isn't he? We notice from John 10, we also notice from Ezekiel uh, chapter 34. 
And he brings us to feed on the best food that there is, him. He is that food. He protects us. When we follow him from wolves and from for those who will go into the ministry for selfish reasons. They're called hirelings in John chapter 10. Evil shepherds who are doing it really for the money, who are doing it for their own belly, will run away when things get tough and will be just filled with excuses. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Proverbs 28, verse 1. Christ is the good shepherd. He's not like men. He knows his sheep. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. He will not run away. We may at times run away. But he will not run away. This good shepherd, he gathers his sheep together. If the... The problem today in the church and the disunity is because we're not following the great shepherd. You can give out about the church all you want, but are you going to church? Are you unifying influence in the church? Are you somebody who sows division? Or are you somebody who encourages people to follow in the law of God and encourages people in that right way and encourages them when they're doing things right? You're not just the person who's telling them all that is done wrong. The devil would, the devil loves people who see nothing in the bride but problems. There are problems in the church. There are things that need to be fixed. Much of the weakness in the pew is, without doubt, linked to the people in the pulpit and the preaching in the pulpit. However, at the same time, are we being our own positive influence? Because we can, yeah, it's easy to complain. It's easy to come on and do a podcast here. This is the easy part. This is the easy part. Making actual real change. That's, that's the hard bit. Bad shepherds scatter the sheep. There are, there are self-appointed people, leaders, who will drag away their own following and isolate part of God's sheep from the rest of the body and all that. It's not a good sign. I don't care what truth you have gotten right or think you got right. But a bad shepherd, somebody's really just influenced, you know, thinks he's got all the answers, causing division among the wider body, etc. and so on, is not a good shepherd. A good shepherd is modeled after the great shepherd, and that is promoting unity, unity in the gospel, because that's really what we should strive for. It's what Jesus prayed to for, towards his Father, that his people would be one. Why? Because what did it say before the world? And we know this, don't we? If you're talking to an unbeliever, or perhaps even somebody who's recently converted or whatever, the fact that there's so many denominations everywhere is not a good thing. We're so divided. In John 17, 20 and 21, it says this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The world may believe that you sent me. 
it's a powerful testimony when you see when you have you ever gone to a church and you just sense the, the not perfect people but you sense the love that is there that they genuinely care for you they're growing in their knowledge of god they want to apply that to their lives they want to be as consistent christians as they could possibly be and you sense that love one toward another and you sense that unity that comes out of it and it's a powerful testimony and people are attracted towards that especially people are saved i mean i know that the lost hate the truth yes i know that but there's sometimes an unbeliever will come the spirit is working in him will draw him in and that expression of unity and love toward one another they may not love christ at that moment in time but they they see something they don't have and they crave it they crave the contentment that they see at the church because eternity has been set in their hearts They've been created in the image of God and they're not going to be satisfied with the sin that they're currently addicted to. Now, of course, they need to repent of their sins and become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And until that point, they will not love or relish the gospel. But it's a far greater testimony, isn't it? When we are one, demonstrating loving unity, following one shepherd and not being a confused mess. And I think... As I wrap this up and we th think of positive truth and we think of maybe the internet and we think of all these things, we have to think about how we use tools. Are they advancing unity within the church or are they causing division? And I've, you know, just seen over the years that too much time on social media and things like that can and does cause division can and does impact our mental health and things like that so we have to think about yeah promote the truth promote it value it don't love this present evil age but also do so with wisdom i think that's something we lack today a lot is wisdom patience I find half the time when people are wrong on things and wrong in pretty serious areas, they kind of self-implode before pride comes destruction. But what, you know, we should pray for people we don't agree with and stuff, pray for Lord be glorified, pray for repentance and things like that. But do we know the truth? Do we know what is right and what is wrong? Not just do we we know of a couple of bad teachers and we shouldn't be copying Stephen Verdick or whoever. I'm not saying there's no value at all in looking at that, but do we know this ourselves? Do we know and love Jesus the Messiah? That's a question for you. I pray that you do. If you've got any questions or anything I didn't cover properly in this program, radio at gmail.com. Lord willing, we'll be back with you again next week remember that united christian witness 30th of july 2022 outside belfast city hall and if anytime after 11 o'clock that'd be wonderful if you can join us and may the lord bless you all it's from paul flynn